0: Snack production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. We're talking about something that I hope to God happens, Keith, because it would be a good day for the world if this does. We can hope that it will, but um, we're talking about how we could use money in the world, you know, the, the arms race is heated up after under Donald Trump Um, which means that countries are trying to build up their weaponry again after a deceleration. Um, But, yeah, things have changed. But you have a concept that you have been exploring that could end the arms race in the world, which would be extraordinary.
1: Well, creating the political will to end the arms race. So I've just uh, been speaking at a conference in Basel in Switzerland on move the nuclear weapons money. So involving the local city council, which hosted the event Um, I was asked to talk about the development of a peace economy and, in particular, building a peace industrial complex. So this is obviously a play on words. In fact, it's the basis of my second PhD, and so you can get a summary of it on uh, Wikipedia. So it's a play on words. The original words were military industrial complex. So this is a phrase that was popularised by President Eisenhower in his 1961 farewell address to Congress. Every president, when they retire from office, delivers an address to Congress. Doesn't necessarily have to be in person. It can be just a written document. But um, increasingly, you tend to speak to Congress, reflecting on your four or eight years in power. Now, Eisenhower had been a professional soldier for most of his working life and saw how the US military had been transformed from a small fighting force into a large, permanent war-fighting establishment. So as recently as 1940, the army of Greece was larger than the United States army, right? It's an incredible statistic. Yes,
0: it's really hard to even picture that.
1: Yeah. So the United States never had a large standing army uh, because a large standing army could then be used by King George III or Washington, D.C. to oppress people. That's one of the reasons why you have the right to bear arms, to defend yourself against the government or invaders, right? So instead of spending money on on an army, you allow your own citizens better buy unlimited amounts of weaponry, right? So up until nineteen forty, the United States army was very small. Then in, in nineteen forty one, we get the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. And the Americans are then drawn into World War II. And so the turning point is December 7, 1941, which is a Japanese on Pearl Harbor. Within four years, the United States was totally transformed, just four years. So it went from a country with a very small standing army, very small navy, and an air force, which was very small and was just simply a branch of the army, didn't even have a separate existence. In Great Britain, by example, our Royal Air Force is 100 years old. But in the United States, what little they had in 1940 was just tucked in under the the United States Army. So suddenly, in four years, the United States was transformed in terms of being a war-fighting country. President Eisenhower had been an army officer for most of his life and had seen how the military had been transformed in World War II. And uh, then he became president. And in his farewell address to Congress, wanting to come up with a memorable phrase, because most of these farewell addresses are easily forgotten. Mm. But this, what, the phrase that he used was military industrial complex. In other words, he said that he had seen in his own lifetime how you had uh, financial interests who are making money out of sustaining the arms race. They were not necessarily warlike people people who work in the factories they wanted a job similarly the people who ran the big corporations were not necessarily nasty vicious people they just wanted to make money and so this military industrial complex then had been formed and and maintained to this day there, under president clinton as you've hinted there was a move to reduce some of that military expenditure what was called the so-called peace dividend at the end of the cold war but we're now back on track Uh, with record military expenditure in the United States. So that is the the military-industrial complex. Um, I might say President Eisenhower was a traditional small government Republican, totally unacceptable to the Republican Party today, right? So Trump would not have him as a member of his party. (laughs) But Eisenhower took the view, as a traditional Republican, you didn't approve of money being spent by Washington on anything, and was concerned about how the money was being spent on weaponry. So he invented this phrase. Um, So what I did for my second doctorate was then to take this phrase and then, if you like, turn it around and talk about a peace industrial complex. In other words, that you bring in the corporations that are not involved in the arms race and try to team them up with the peace movement and other things. So, you know, peace, you know, peace groups, religious groups, etc., to create a movement which would then reply to the military-industrial complex and provide the political will. There's no shortage of ideas for actually ending the arms race. Indeed, I've written one of the books with a, a treaty for, for world disarmament. There's no shortage of ideas for that. But the problem is how do you create the political will? And so that's why I have written about and and recently spoke at this Basel conference in Switzerland. That's why I talk about the need for a peace industrial complex and involving people. Let me give a concrete example uh, of what I'm about. So Joan Kroc, who died a few years ago, she was the widow of the McDonald's CEO, Ray Kroc, right? Now, she, in her lifetime was a financier of the American peace movement. So she gave money to Australian peace activist Helen Caldecott. She also created um, $50 million for the University of Notre Dame in the United States for an institute for peace studies. Her argument is that in the end of World War III, no one's going to be buying hamburgers. So as far as she was concerned, She had a vested interest in avoiding a nuclear arms race and a nuclear war, and therefore she was willing to finance people who were working for peace so she could maintain her profits.
0: It is such an interesting philosophy, but how do you get people on board, Keith, like the masses? How about we talk about that in just a moment? All right, okay. This is Global Truths with Dr Keith Suda. We're talking about this notion of using money to end the arms race. But it's quite a complex sort of philosophy, isn't it, Keith? But yeah. But, gosh, if it could work, you know.
1: If it could work. Yeah. What I'm recommending is that we have a peace industrial complex to apply to the military industrial complex, trying to bring together people who do not make money out of weaponry, and that's a lot of corporations. I should imagine this radio station is not involved in making weapons, for example. So they would have an interest because in the event of World War Three, no one's going to be listening to podcasts.
0: Yeah, it's fair. Yeah. So that's actually a simple way to explain it. It is. Everyone should have a vested interest unless you're making
1: arms. That's right. And, in fact, the number of big arms producers, um, the, the, the main list is about 20. So we're not talking about a huge number of corporations although each of those corporations is large. But they're, they're very quite... They're, but they're outnumbered by the local plumbers and the local tradespeople and, and all the rest of it. So these are people for whom World War III would represent real problems for their business, right? So that's one side of the house. The other side of the house would be to involve the peace activists of one sort or another um, to get them to campaign. Now, I proposed this um, idea of a peace industrial complex 20-odd years ago and I made very little progress. Peace activists are as much a problem as as business interests, I've got to say. (laughs) In what way? Well, because peace activists will just focus on getting rid of nuclear weapons, right? So their focus is just a campaign against nuclear weapons. It's something short, and, and, of course, we do have a treaty now abolishing nuclear weapons, although the Australian government has not accepted it, which is why I say there's a need for a peace industrial complex. You've got to create the political will to get the government to agree to do things. Yeah. So that's what I've tried to do in the doctorate, is to look at how you create that political will. So it means, on the one hand, that peace groups have to be in dialogue with business interests, business councils, such as the Institute of Company Directors, of which I'm a member. Um, So, in other words, it means peace groups, having to think about, you know, how do you consort with uh, business groups? Another Uh, aspect is to redefine national security. Quite often, national security is seen as a military issue, whereas I'm saying we should redefine national security to include economic and social indicators. And so we need, in the peace movement, to build a coalition with welfare and anti-poverty groups. They also have an interest in ending the arms race, so there will be money freed up for their own work. Um, Also, the whole issue of climate change, that you've got and you know we've got some very interesting activists now on on climate change they also should be part of this peace industrial complex they're clearly showing an ability to to campaign so it's their expertise that we should be getting and i think also to have the economics profession brought into the debate by being challenged to think about how 1.7 trillion dollars it's it's, an, it's um, a huge sum of money is being badly spent each year. When I was writing my doctorate uh, 20-odd years ago, over 20 years ago now, I had to work out how you would recycle the global military budget. So I had clean water and sanitation throughout Africa in six weeks. Of course. (laughs) Because the sums of money, uh, I think, assuming there is a future for the planet, I think future historians will look back on the period of 1945 and up until whenever we come to our senses as a period when we really squandered an opportunity for us to have rebuilt the earth. In other words, we spent the money still on arms when we really could have been rebuilding the earth. You know, we could be eradicating poverty, all these social issues that we cover, you know, poverty, disease, malaria. Malaria killed more Australian soldiers in World War II than the Japanese did. Mm. So there are a lot of problems that we could actually have solved one way or another. Because you always hear about researchers saying there isn't enough money. Well, it's a huge sum of money there. If only we could recycle it. I think the government should still be allowed defence forces, but not the obscene levels of defence expenditure that we currently have. One of the issues, really, say something, let's take nuclear weapons. There's a big debate going on in Great Britain at the moment about our nuclear fleet, because technically Russia is no longer an enemy, as it was in the Cold War. So who are we targeting with the nuclear missiles? We have a submarine at sea at any one time, nuclear-armed missiles, but what are they aimed at? What's the point? What's the point? But it's very expensive.
0: Yeah, but then, okay, so I, I, love, I love philosophically what you're suggesting here, but then how would you ever convince countries like Russia and China to disarm?
1: Well, because they also have a vested interest in being able to reduce their military expenditure.
0: I agree, but how do you convince them of that?
1: Well, because we've got to get similar campaigns operating in those two countries.
0: But how do you do that, Keith?
1: Well, that's why we have networks of peace activists. But as I say, I've been campaigning on this uh, for well over 20 years and been able to achieve very little traction... Um, simply because peace activists are very narrow in their specialisation. We talk about government departments having a silo mentality so the Department of Transport only deals with transport. It's not going to think about anything else. Well, you get the same with non-governmental organisations, right? You got. I, I was involved with a petition for the World Disarmament Campaign. I presented... Uh, Uh, the petitions uh, to the UN Secretary-General flown over to New York, by the way, by the then Prime Minister, Malcolm Fraser, which was interesting. So we had collected all these petitions. I handed them over to the UN Secretary-General. We circulated it through a major environmental organisation and there were complaints from uh, the members of the organisation saying, why are you circulating a petition relating to nuclear weapons? That's got nothing to do with the environment. So that's what I talk about, the silo mentality, that you've also got it within non-governmental organisations. That's why I was very happy to be associated with this Basel Peace Initiative, which is involving the local government in Switzerland, because clearly they're trying to reintroduce some sort of financial dimension to this. You know, they always talk about the most sensitive part of the human anatomy is the hip pocket nerve. In other words the nerve traditionally near where the wallet is kept. Mm. So uh, my view over the years has been if we can try to reach a a common understanding on the economics of the arms race and how we could rebuild the earth with uh, spending the money that's going on defence. The tragedy is that China, um, now it's becoming more and more of a superpower, automatically is spending more and more in the military, much Mm. less than the United States. But nonetheless, they're saying, oh, we're becoming much more of a larger economy, therefore automatically. We need, therefore, to be spending money on defence. I'm not sure that's the case. I don't think anybody's getting threatening China, although the, the language of Trump is unhelpful. Um, Why
0: would anyone want to invade China? Exactly. No one.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Why would anybody want to invade Australia when Australia is willing to sell everything? So there has actually if been. We're a
0: beautiful country coming here.
1: We're a beautiful country, but you come here on a tourist visa. You don't need to come here in an aircraft carrier, right? <laughs> and it is interesting that uh, in the long term, we are actually seeing a reduction in warfare and the number of people killed in wars. I know that nobody ever believes me on that, but thats they're the facts, right? So the world is becoming a more peaceful place. So why do we therefore still need to keep spending all this weaponry? Now, the explanation for that is that military expenditure is the greatest example of socialism in the United States. In other words, that you've got all of these military facilities, factories or bases scattered throughout 50 American states, which means that any attempt like President Clinton tried to make to try to reduce military expenditure automatically results in complaints to members of Congress because they are loss of employment opportunities. That's why I'm saying that the military-industrial complex needs to ensure, for example, that in a military contract, there is a provision on the contractor to explain, in the event of a reduction in military expenditures, how will you redeploy your staff? How will you do things differently? And there are some great examples of conversion of American bases for civilian use. It can be done, but it's a really big challenge for people's method of thinking to think of a peace industrial complex.
0: Well, Keith, you know, you're only 70. You've still got plenty of time (laughs) left to go out and (laughs) and lobby on this.
1: (laughs) If we can build the bomb, we can build the peace.
0: Global Truths was presented by Dr Keith Souter and me, Kate Mack. Produced by Live Proud. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.